Welcome to the Sajcast. I'm Mark Austin. And I'm Stacy Roberts. And we, we are, are the Sons, Sons of Joy. Joy. You're listening to Sajcast number seven. Our seventh ever Sajcast. And today's Sajcast is sponsored by Lowered Expectations. When good enough is good enough. Makers of fine things such as keeping you from being let down, fine, whatever, and okay then, if that's how it has to be. And it's interesting that we should follow up a Saj cast that was about productivity with one about lowered expectations. We are kind of... Uh, we don't pick our sponsors. What are you talking about? <laughs> the, the, the fates are strange in this way. <laughs> Listen, we pick our sponsors in time-honored uh, tradition of podcasts the world over. We are approached by uh, entities... Some of them are defunct, like the Roman Empire, and some of them are intangible, like lowered expectations. Um, just you wait. I've got a line on indoor plumbing as a future sponsor, and, um, well, that'll be good. So, lowered expectations. Let's not denigrate the sponsor. Let's talk about what it is that they do well, well which yes. is um, nothing. <laughs> well, they get us through the day <clears throat> often enough. That's right. But they don't do anything exceptionally. They do it straight on. Well, exactly. Well, yes. Woody Allen said, what, 99% of, uh, 99% of something was just showing up. Yeah. Life. That Life. was it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing we're here. Yeah. So, lowered expectations is about those 99%. Um, although we personally strive for more, but the, not to denigrate lowered expectations. Because that's kind of a theme for today. Because we discovered that we can actually, uh, knit together a theme and pursue it almost without trying. So we're going to start trying, see what happens. We'll see if we can't wrap this up tightly as if in denim. There you go. That'll make sense later. Maybe. You know, if you keep saying that, people will not be impressed by the subtlety of our genius in which it just happens. It will lower their expectations. Indeed. So on to current events. Current events. And again, as I have pointed out in the past, having a, a Sajcast with a current events section means that you wake up and pay attention when things go on in the news, even if they pass with almost no notice by the media, like um, the selection of Paul Ryan as the vice presidential candidate to uh, work with Mitt Romney. I'm not sure I would categorize that as without notice. I was uh, lowering everyone's expectations. <laughs> But um, I thought you were implying that his uh, his pick was one of lowered expectations. Well, and that could be because in current events, I would like to delve into vice presidential picks because, in my estimation, there are only three reasons that you pick a vice president. I mean, the reason that they are who they are generally comes from one of three reasons. One, and just so I'm clear, the entity that is speaking is your political party. The men in the smoke-filled rooms with these cigars. They are essentially saying one of three things to the presidential nominee. One, we're so sure you're going to win that you can pick anyone. It's how we got Dan Quayle. But not to, not to um, denigrate him, it's also how we got Harry Truman. Uh, that is the first case. The second case is you've got a tough fight in front of you and we're going to have to pick a vice presidential candidate who's going to help you out. In your weak spots. The and ticket balancer. The ticket balancer. That's mm -hmm. how we got Lyndon Johnson, for example. And then the third reason is, you're going to lose anyway. So we want you to pick a guy who will be at the top of the ticket next time. Much like John Edwards comes to mind. Um, Richard Nixon a couple of times. But if you don't get, if you don't win, uh, your vice presidential pick is the next nominee, or as soon as he is able to be the next nominee, he is. For example, historical note, Franklin Delano Roosevelt ran for vice president in 1920. I think it was 20. With a guy named James Cox, who no one has ever heard of, but he was at the top of the ticket. Uh, he was a number two man on the ticket, and that led into the keynote address at the convention, which is another star maker mm. that I'm not sure most people are aware of, but... Uh, Bill Clinton gave a keynote back in the late 80s. Senator Obama. Senator Obama gave one. And back in 1924, 
Franklin D. Roosevelt gave a keynote uh, address for a guy who, as it turns out, did not get elected president. So, spoiler alert, Christie is giving the yes. speech. At so the, just, uh, just, just so we're clear, this is how these things happen. And picking a vice presidential candidate is not something where Mitt says, I get along with Paul. I admire his, his, his very forward hairline and his approach to things. Um, I am going to venture to say that Paul Ryan was not Mitt's first choice. And, and, you know, there's no way for us to know, but I suspect it was the party who went to Mitt and said, you're not really our kind of guy. And we want you to run with somebody who is our kind of guy. So that's the top level. But behind that, if you lose in four years, we've got this guy to be our nominee. And he, well, we really like him. I suspect that the party picked, for example, Sarah Palin. I doubt that John McCain went looking around and settled on her as his uh, <clears> not as choice. not as his choice for VP anyway. Right, and so um, so there's the nominee, and and just because the History Channel is still showing uh, TV shows about people who bring stuff they find in their basements and attics to guys who laugh at them and then give them way less than it's worth, and no real historical. Uh, information, perhaps I can fill that gap with a little history of the vice presidency, uh, which has been, well, lowered expectations. You get that job thinking that it's going to be all that, and as it turns out, it's not worth a bucket of warm spit. And I think it was John Adams who said that. And he ought to know. He was the first one. But originally, the vice president was the guy who ran for president against you and did not win. He came in second. So, in the first presidential election ever, George Washington ran against John Adams and beat him. And that's how you got John Adams to be your vice president. That would certainly be an interesting model today, wouldn't it? It sure would, because... <laughs> Talk about we... gridlock government. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you'd... that assumes that the vice president would have any power, right? So, hmm. originally, the framers had in mind that these were the two best men of the of the nation. That, uh, presumably, that if if you had the number one guy and the number two guy in terms of votes that they would form a coalition, which is kind of Europe, European style, and then govern effectively. So in the case of, uh, so the reason the vice president ultimately was stripped of most all of his power is that he would left him with the one job that he'd had through the campaign, which is wait for something bad to happen to the guy who's really winning, and then you get to take over. So, Well, I guess uh, it cast the tie-breaking uh, vote in the Senate. Right. Back when we, that might have been possible. Well, <laughs> It's happened recently. But as the um, the advent of political parties uh, ruined a great many things, because if you look at the election of 1800, John Adams, who was the sitting president, ran against Thomas Jefferson, and if they ended up being the number one and number two, then you would have the former president is now the vice president to a guy he doesn't like. And I'm, I, I didn't actually research when that stopped happening, but it was done by the time Andrew Jackson was president because he picked his running mate. It was not long before politicians realized that having the president and his chief opponent from the from the election was not really going to work. But you have to wonder. I mean, there's something to be said for the two best men. Right? I agree. And so if you took that model and just made it partisan even, you know, the, the number one vote-getter from the Republicans and the number two vote-getter is the Veep. Yeah. Or at least the... The candidate. The candidate. So in this particular case, that would have Mitt Romney running with uh, either Rick Santorum. Well, Rick Santorum. Yeah, I didn't see what the final count was because everybody sort of dropped out. Right. But, but now, yeah. but this is where we get into the problem is that if Rick Santorum is your vice presidential candidate and you don't win, he is the first guy to throw his hat in. Yeah, because who's going to beat uh, Obama Clinton? Right. Good luck with that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so... Um, and, and and also to be clear, there have been quite a number of vice presidents in history who have been underestimated. Expectations yes. of them have, in fact, been lowered. Uh, for example, Harry Truman was added to FDR's ticket because they knew he was going to win anyway. It didn't matter who he picked. And at the time, Truman was a senator who was uh, popular in the Senate for fighting crime and things like that. And they said, well, people have heard of him, so let's put him in. Uh, it doesn't matter because FDR is going to win anyway. Uh, Richard Dixon was another one of those young guy to play to Eisenhower's old guy. Uh, he brought in valuable uh, electoral votes from California, but turned out to be, as it turned out, uh, better than they might have expected as a politician, but not so much in the moral high ground. 
So it will be interesting to uh, watch vice presidential pick dynamics play out in the fall. Well, and how many times has uh, who we elected as the vice president really mattered in that uh, fatalistic sort of way? Well, you so mean... we've had a couple of assassinations, a couple of people who died in office, and one who just just whoop, well, I'm, I'm going to get impeached by. <laughs> yeah, well, so when when they fulfill, as it were, the number one job of the vice president, which is to take over, okay. It really, it, like William Henry Harrison was the first president to die in office. And he was succeeded by John Tyler, and, well, nothing happened. I mean, it wasn't... Yeah. In fact, at the time, they weren't clear that he should take over. But he did. And so that, uh, like many things to do with the executive office, set the precedent. So the problem in 1865, when Abraham Lincoln got assassinated, was that he had picked Andrew Johnson as a compromise vice president to mollify the South. Uh, Johnson was the military governor of Tennessee, technically a Southerner, formerly a Democrat. He came over to the Republican cause, was made vice president, and, well, that didn't work out so well. Uh, the other thing, a very interesting president, for those of you who are tired of watching uh, material transactions on the History Channel, James A. Garfield was actually quite a uh, good president and had lots and lots of potential, but he picked Chester Arthur to run with him, or he was made to pick him by the New York political machine, and so instead of getting James A. Garfield, who spoke eight languages and was compassionate and, and did all this, we got Chester A. Arthur, who used to run the Port of New York because it paid $50,000 a year in 1880. So wait, who died sooner? Harrison, right? Not Garfield? Harrison was the first one to die in office. I mean, shortest term. Shortest term was Harrison. Yeah. Garfield was slightly longer. Not much, though. Not much, though. Um, uh, and then after that, we had Calvin Coolidge, who was a good president. Oh, well, Teddy Roosevelt. Let's not skip him over. Every 20 years, we've had a president die in office, which is something <laughs> that the Kabbalists will think about. But I think we've gone more than 20 recently. <laughs> yes, they had high hopes for um, uh, Reagan when he got assassinated. Everybody said, oh, there it is. Oh, yeah, uh, that's probably worth right? noting. Yeah. Yes, and in 2000, there was a large segment of the country that was actively hoping for it, but didn't turn out. So we've skipped now a couple of uh, a couple of 20-year increments, but um, in 1900, William McKinley who was actually a good president, uh, but he was succeeded by Roosevelt, who pretty much eclipsed him. And in 1924, uh, 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 Warren G. Harding died and was succeeded by Calvin Coolidge, who turned out to be better than his predecessor, which um, Warren G. Harding, shall we say, lowered the expectations, so it was easy for Cal to look good. Roosevelt had Truman, and so after a giant like Roosevelt, somebody as good as Truman didn't stand necessarily as tall. And then after Kennedy, you had Johnson. And Johnson was a was a capable president. Much like John Adams, his reputation is being renovated. They're looking at him in a whole new light and saying that as a man who governed the country, he did that pretty well and without the flash and, and uh, pomp that Kennedy would have if he had lived. Well, and Nixon's kind of hot on the heels there, so that probably compressed our 20-year interval a little bit. Right. Although Nixon's a whole other story because Nixon's it's not that his vice president that he ran with yeah. took office. Right. It was a guy that he uh, nominated to be vice president. And Gerald Ford was another compromise candidate. He was a guy who was universally acceptable, which that's not uh, that's nothing you want to put on a plaque and hang on your wall. Hold on, everyone. <laughs> I am universally acceptable. I offend the least amount of people. When they look at me and lower their expectations and go, eh, all right, he'll do. Yeah, but it was a pretty tenuous time. I mean, we were but we toddlers. We were. But I recently have read um, uh, a book about the presidents and their executive club, and it covers a lot of detail on how they got to be there. And as it turns out, when you look at Presidents who make decisions, and this is kind of a profiles and courage thing, but Gerald Ford pardoning Nixon for the good of the nation, it was significantly against his best interests. Yes. And there was no deal. It wasn't how he got the job because the party elders went to Nixon and said, you need to pick somebody that we don't hate. And that's Gerald Ford and this other guy that you've never heard of. So who's it going to be? Um, and like when George H.W. Bush raised taxes. It's violating his pledge. Mm. Uh, he did what he thought was in the best interest of the nation, and we made him pay for it in the way that we always do, which is voting him out of office. 
So as a, as a guidance for the voting citizenry of this great land, let me just say that why don't we start rewarding people for good work instead of uh, getting on their case for breaking a promise. And in, I guess, other current events, the, uh, the Olympics have run their course. And so for all those other countries that were picking on us and our somewhat um, malformed government that limps along from time to time, we took home more golds than you, nanny, nanny, nanny. And we landed a spaceship on Mars. What have you done lately? Yeah, I'm not sure that's charitable to the other members of humanity. But I think that if you're going to put an SUV on Mars, I think that's worth mentioning. So. And I got to practice. I know you've got an Xbox at home. Did you practice landing it? No. The, uh, the Mars lander? I didn't know you could do that. Yeah, there's a free download. From uh, from NASA of all places. No, that makes sense. And it's it's a short game. It takes maybe three minutes to play. There's a couple of stages in landing, but it's a connect thing. So you have to fire the oh I see the engines with your hands, mm-hmm. and then you steer the parachute. It's kind of fun. Well, and 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 that sounds good. Except this was the the couple of weeks in which I was trying to prepare my oldest daughter for for her driver's test, and I can only imagine that if I crashed the rover into the <laughs> surface of Mars. It would denigrate my uh, qualifications to teach her how to parallel park and do a three-point turn. So it's probably best that I didn't even try. It's a bit of a remote driving thing, so it's a different. It's a little different. They would not. My children would not make that distinction. They would say, "How is it possible that you're going to teach me to park on a hill, for example, or back up for 50 feet, or any of the other arcane things I must know to pass my driver's test if you can't even land the Mars rover without breaking the windshield?" So that's a good point, and I would let them have it. <laughs> well, give it a try now that all that's behind now you. Now that no one will judge me, I will land the Mars rover. So, moving on to project updates. Now, for those of you who listened to last week's Sajcast, which we have recommended um, that you go back to one and listen to all of them forward, but last week in particular, we were sort of lamenting that our projects were in, well, neutral. It was more than a lament, I would say. It was more of an uh, confession. Yeah. It was like going to Catholic, you know, mass and mm-hmm. sitting on the little kneeler and, the, and they slide the window open. And we told our listeners that we effed up. Yeah, we did not get done all the things that we said to get done. And and remember that one of the things, one of the byproducts of talking about yourself and what it is that you do in the absence of confirmation from the audience, we believe these things to be important. We if, if, if talking about them lends them gravity, then for us to say that we are engaged in projects to not do them kind of flies in the face of our own self-importance to that end. After our lament, I was going to say, and, and today's uh, sponsor is Lowered Expectations. Indeed it is. So after realizing that we had dropped the ball, we picked the ball up and uh, moved forward on several fronts, as it were. We did. And uh, I wrote the half-finished blog post that's been languishing in my folder, and I finally got that done and posted and I was active on my various social media sites to tweet and retweet. And I was going to say, it's, it's probably worth mentioning that if you go to the Sajcast home, there's a, a tab for your blog, as well yes. as mine, yes. um, which is called Trailer Trash with a Girl's Name. Yes, because I am factual in all things. I lived in a Winnebago motorhome for five years and traveled this great land, which qualifies me as Trailer Trash which I'm hoping will get me into some events that I might find <laughs> entertaining, like monster truck rallies and um, fishing. I, I did go to a demolition derby. Yes, on the weekend. One of us has to. So, um, But so anyway, anyway, it's it's out there. It's the biggest tab there is because it's a long title. But uh, we'll put a link especially into this blog, which was about prognostication. Is that right? Yes. Well, doomsaying. Doomsaying. My mother was convinced that well, it was a little bit of fatalism, that when it was your time to go, it was your time to go. And so when our Winnebago lost it, lost its brakes on the hill overlooking Hoover Dam, 
and we were careening down this <laughs> rather narrow road straight to Lake Mead. Um, she wasn't really afflicted by any kind of fear or terror. It was, it was all, well, if we're fated to die today, then that's what's going to happen. And why should we spend these last precious minutes we have together trying to prevent it? Right? Let's just go along and, um. Look at the lovely architecture. Look at the, yes. And she was taking pictures out the window as we're careening <laughs> madly and saying, well, what is that smell in the background? And well, those are the brakes on fire because they don't really work anymore. And we're very likely to end up in Lake Mead where we'd be sucked down by the turbines of Hoover Dam, ground into little tiny bits, and, um, well, subsequently killed. Um, and but, show up in someone's uh, faucet in Las Vegas. That's right. And um, so when we were traveling the country in our motorhome, which was not by any means safe or secure or... Uh, luxurious. Luxurious or uh, fireproof or any number of other things. <laughs> safe. This was the wrong time to have parents who thought that Oh, yeah. You could die any time. We were at the Grand Canyon one time. Now, I was 10 years old. We were at the Grand Canyon, and I saw a squirrel on the edge of the canyon. I was like, well, I'm worried about that squirrel. He could fall to the bottom of the canyon and die. And my mother said, well, don't worry. His heart will burst from fear before <laughs> he hits the ground. And I wasn't sure where she was going with that. Was she trying to tell me that it wasn't going to be so bad because he wasn't going to hit the bottom of the canyon? Alive. Alive, <laughs> right? Her optimism was, well, it's not going to be the fall that kills him. It will be the terror that explodes his heart. So just an insight into my childhood. Uh, speaking of lowered expectations, it was, you know, sure you could die. So it's fair to say that your mother wasn't really of the philosophy that cowards die many times before their death. Because that squirrel was just going to die the once before it's dead. That's right. It was going to die once before impact. And so uh, the essence of my blog is to kind of retell these stories uh, in a way that people would actually believe that they happened. Which, i got to say, they are true. Indeed. Well, if you want to see how they survived that perilling, perilous journey, head over to Trailer Trash with a girl's name. Number six, is it? Five. Uh, number five. Number five. Number six, uh, based on the new momentum that we generated in Sodgecast number six by um, self-flagellation that we haven't got our things done, you can expect a new broadcast uh, fairly soon. And that doesn't mean we fart a lot. I'm not, sure that needed, I'm not sure that needed to be explained. <laughs> and more to the point, you oh. do not want me to launch into some sort of explanation historically. Of people who flagellated themselves back in the... I would enjoy that. During the during the Black Plague, especially. That's right. <laughs> so. Anyway. Anyway. We were talking about project updates. We and, and we had yet another project update. As our listeners will know, and if you're new to this podcast, once again, go back to number one. Listen to them all. You will see that we are writers of fiction who like to make sure that our elements of realism are realistic. So, uh, in our book, one of our characters uses a stun gun, and so we got one to we see <clears throat> to see what that was like. And um, as we go along here, there are certain elements of the story where we say, well, what is it like to hack off a guy's leg? We don't claim to have perfect knowledge. That's right. And so, it's worth noting that we were back up on that horse, mm -hmm. and we were working uh, pretty tirelessly on Chapter 2. That's or right. parts of three, depending on where that gets sliced. Mm -hmm. And we came across uh, this problem where, yeah, where our characters have to hack off a guy's leg. We're not going to get into why. Why does it really matter? Because no. much like the squirrel falling into the bottom of the canyon, it is enough to know that they had to hack off a guy's leg and they felt pretty convinced of their way forward. And they weren't going to think a lot about it. They weren't going to second guess. And so, we... Not claiming to have prior knowledge of hacking off people's legs, thought, well, we could imagine what that's like, or we could hack up a guy's leg, or we could simulate hacking off a guy's leg. And so, after some uh, some long, intense discussions about which option to take, especially with our spiritual advisors, <laughs> yes, especially with well, who do we know who's got legs? Um, we came up with what we like to call in the spirit of our theme today, an acceptable substitute. So in a sense, 
as we mentioned early on, lowered expectations as being the makers of, oh, I guess that'll do. We arranged for a leg. So to speak. So to speak. Uh, do you want to describe in detail what we did and how that uh, might well, let's, let's talk about back. how we conceived the idea first. <clears throat> so, one of the things we wondered, uh, because as it happens, uh, and this is always funny to hear a writer say about a piece of fiction for which they are responsible, it just happens that the leg that they have to cut off uh, is in jeans. It's fellow wearing denim. Right, and as as most... Now, um, some would argue that we could change that. <laughs> Won't be in the writers. We could, but we're not going to because, no. you know, a, a part of writing involves a Jekyll and Hyde approach in which you say, well, we have to figure out how to cut that guy's leg off because that's what happens in the book. It is. We're not, we're not going to take it out. Right. Um, and, and I guess if you want to have a larger discussion about where your ideas come from, sometimes you take what the muse gives you. Yes. And in another book that we have already written but will uh, not be released first, there's another leg coming off. Hmm. So, uh, and all these ideas are yours, and so I'm not really sure who tried to cut your leg off when you were a child, but... I, I still have them both. Yes, yeah, so it's the, it, it keeps coming back, but... So in this particular case, I decided, after uh, having to write legs being chopped off scenes, that it was time to get some grounding in the art. And uh, in case most people... It hasn't occurred to you, but in the wild, if you have to cut somebody's leg off, no one has really stripped it of clothing and drawn a line where you're supposed to cut and provided you an implement thereupon to do it. Cutting off somebody's leg, uh, even as part of a plan, there's going to be some obstacles. Yeah, and it's worth noting that our characters, uh, we've given them some degree of planning. They're not walking into this scene empty-handed, That's let's right. say. They know that cutting is going to be involved, so they have a cutting implement. They know, they know that more than cutting, perhaps cleaving is involved. That's right. And so if I, listeners, if I said to you, how would you cut off a guy's leg? I would be willing to bet that family feud style cleaver would be high on the list. Yeah, if you get a second to think about it, I mean, You'd short say, of some other industrial implement. Right, I mean, yeah. I think a lot of people would prefer things like, you know, uh, mechanical saw. A guillotine. A guillotine, um, that shark from that movie about oh, yeah. that shark. There are ways to get legs off, and and I'm sure that most people, if pressed, uh, would delight in coming up with a list. But cleaver seems like a pretty reasonable, uh, attainable hmm. implement because people have them. Yes. And so, if our characters are setting about in the world to hack off somebody's body part, and we're not going to stick the leg, but it's what happens in the book, um, they would bring what they have lying around, and so that explains how the cleaver got there. And so, for our experiment, we were confronted with a, a few salient facts. A leg, in pants, and a cleaver. Yes. And we were going to have to either prove or disprove the efficacy of the scene. Yes, and in in thinking through it, I know early on I was thinking, wait, I bet blue jeans would pose some sort of problem for a cleaver. Yes. But I didn't know that for a fact. And so we set out to find out what it's like to cut off someone's leg through a pair of jeans. Yes, and I think here it's important for the sake of the authorities to clarify that we didn't actually cut off a guy's leg that was wrapped in jeans. The simulation, however, involved pork. It did, because, well, one, it's reasonably inexpensive, it's easily attainable, and from what we hear, it tastes like human. Right, and so for all these reasons, it seemed like pork would be the qualifying meat for this experiment. And so that means that we needed a pair of pants, which you donated because you had a pair of jeans that was no longer really good for wearing. They had all kinds of holes in them, so I figured, what's one more? <laughs> what's one more? That's right. And um, and we're not into food porn yet, but the story of this project update does involve food. Not only the, the dish we invented, denim-wrapped pork. Denim-wrapped pork. Which will be in all the finest restaurants really anytime soon. Um, but the planning... So here's the thing. If you're out in public at a restaurant like the Outback, which you'll we'll get to in food porn, and you're sitting at a table talking about hacking off somebody's leg with a cleaver, the wait staff walks very slowly past your table and they're listening to what you're saying. 
They they go to the alcove, which happens to be right next to your booth, and they linger and lean, and you can see earrings and, right. and ponytails. And that's how you know that they're listening to you, and uh, perhaps on their smartphones, they've already dialed nine and one, and they're waiting for some sort of catchphrase to to complete the call. But then we had to go to the grocery store to get the pork. Yes. So, yeah, we, we discussed, well, we discussed the whole chapter, uh, but... I think towards the end of the meal, yeah, we were kind of somewhat obsessed about the mechanics of the the dismemberment. Right. And and so, remember, now we're sitting in a restaurant saying things out loud like, well, I think if you're going to hack the guy's leg off with a cleaver, you're going to need a swing that comes from way back. And, um, again, the waitstaff, um, they were not as attentive as we would thought to our needs. Like, our drinks ran empty, but... Somehow they were all listening. They were all hovering around our table, but no one was doing anything for us. It's worth mentioning that we were at an Outback um, for a late lunch, like one one thirty. We shut up, so it's pretty dead. Yeah, actually, which is weird for the Outback in the Midwest. Right. is generally full of people, but right. we hit it at this weird time. So the waitstaff had opportunity to sit around listening to us. Yes, and um, so we went from there with a with a feeling that oh, I think we're being watched. I think we are we're being surveilled. As it were. Yes, I was wishing I had a separate credit card that I could throw away. Yes, <laughs> that wouldn't trace one. me to that meal. Yeah, gift card. So uh, then we went to our local supermarket, Remke Markets. Um, uh, yeah, it's local here to the Cincinnati Greater Midwestal area. Yes, and we went straight away to their butcher shop. And well, no, not quite. Well, no, I'm saying we oh, went. We to went the, to the meat section. We went to the meat section, hoping, based on our experience at the Outback. That we would find the perfect leg-simulated meat that we could just buy and leave the store with. Without quietly. Having, uh, quietly, yes. right. <laughs> um, you know, beneath the radar, as it were, and not have to really attempt to explain to anyone what we were going to do. And so in searching, we kind of came up, well, not empty-handed, but we came back with a ham hock. Yeah. I guess that's uh, the only way shank? to put it. A shank. Yeah, it was a, a leg of a pig. Which we thought was perfect because it's got, you know, the uh, the femur bone and everything that we were kind of looking for, except it was smoked. Right. Which well, And sticklers for detail that we are, we walked over to the raw meat, the raw pork, and we squeezed it. And then we squeezed the smoked pork and we went, hey. Well, and, and it would be one of the few occasions in my life in which I say, oh, well, they smoked that pork and we just ruined it. <laughs> For our purposes. And so then we went back to the butcher counter. And when you go to the butcher counter at, at new grocery stores, it's much like the Sith in the Star Wars movies. There was always a master <laughs> and an apprentice. And so at our butcher counter, there was a silver, an iron-haired man, a brawny fellow with a gigantic protruding belly who was clearly the head butcher. Yes. And we thought this was a fellow we could bring around to our cause. Well, say. and by butcher, we have to say also, in the way of modern grocers, that they don't butcher anything. Oh, they no. don't have a side of beef back there they break down. Right. If anything, they take bigger cuts and make them smaller. Cuts. Right. So, so even if this fellow was more consultative, an expert in meat, yes, where you could go to him and say, I'm trying to make the following for dinner for 10, two weeks from now, he would say, here's the perfect cut of meat to do that. Now, is this someone that you can go to and say, we need to simulate dismemberment? And so is that a pork thing? Is that a beef thing? Or is there is lamb perhaps better? And, you know, by the time you're halfway into that conversation, you may start to think that you've miscalculated. But anyway, he was otherwise engaged. And that left us with The Apprentice. And The Apprentice was a giddy slip of a girl, uh, probably in her early 20s, uh, recently back from her smoke break. And we said, we'd like this pork shank only not smoked. Yeah, raw. Raw. And because she was still in training, her first question was, what are you going to make with it? At which point, everyone's heart jumps into their throat, adrenaline starts squeezing out of our adrenal glands as we plan our escape. <laughs> and for those of us who pride ourselves on thinking fast on our feet, it did not happen. At least for me. Well, I said stew, and then within a half a second realized hell. <laughs> there's nothing there's no pork stew <laughs> there's no pork stew right but but see now this is where dealing with the apprentice helped us out because she 
How long had she been in the butchering trade? For all we know, she had just segued over from the floral department. Who knew what she knew? Well, she did consult with the Sith Master. That's true, she did. Briefly. And then she came out from behind her little icebox and gave us some suggestions, which I guess were helpful in the end. That's what we used. Except we weren't making stew. True. <laughs> so it depends on... I'm not sure how helpful those suggestions were, but... Well, I, I think his sub suggestions were follow those two and keep nine and one on your phone. That's right. Times. I think this is where they're... Um, you know, because you think that even grocery stores have to have some kind of security plan. As soon as we went over to the pork section where she had said, try some of these cuts, she disappeared for a little bit, and then she came back with a whole cart of meat that she had chosen just that time to put out there yes. so that she could overhear our deliberations about the particular cut of meat and whether it would suit our purposes, whatever those might be. And, of course, the master sent the apprentice to do the dangerous work while he lingered <laughs> behind the counter and said, go find out what those two are up to. Try not to get captured, for example, and thrown into their trunk, trunk and end up as a side dish with the pork. So, for the second time in a pretty short span of time. And a, and a short distance. And I a mean, short the, distance. The restaurants right? and the, the store are stones throw apart. Yes, we felt like perhaps we were under more scrutiny then we're comfortable with. We beat a hasty retreat. We uh, we ended up buying a pork shoulder, as it turned out, uh, because it was about the right size for what we wanted. Uh, it was reasonably priced, and it had a bone in it. It wasn't quite the bone we wanted. We wanted a femur, but it was okay. It was bone. Right. And that's what we were interested in learning. How difficult is it to cut through jeans? How difficult is it to cleave through um, a good, what was that, six-inch cut yeah. of meat with a bone in it? Right. So that, that seemed to, um, as lowered expectations go, meet all of our requirements. So in a sense, it was good enough for what we wanted to uh, do. It, it was. And so now, now I guess the question here is, is that do we now simply refer our loyal listeners to the website where they can see what happened next? <laughs> or do we describe it? Well, it bears some description in case they're on an airplane or riding cross country and they can't get to the web. Okay. We put the leg substitute in the jeans and then realized uh, something we had not foreseen, which is a full-size leg provides uh, obstacles of its own, meaning that if you just take a piece of pork that's six inches long, maybe 12 inches long, and you put it inside the leg of jeans, there's no more leg to hold it still. It's going to go everywhere. Yeah, it slips around. It slips around. So we had to accommodate for that, which we did. Yeah, we took some cord and we basically cinched up um, a tight pocket around it so that it had nowhere to go. Right. And then we we proceeded to fire away with the cleaver. And it did not work. We we beat the heck out of this pork. I would say that, that meat was tenderized quite thoroughly. Quite thoroughly. It was bruised, <laughs> but no one was injured uh, in the making of this particular experiment because the genes held. So if someone's coming after you with a cleaver on the street, try to block it with your jeans. Maybe. No. <laughs> well, I, I as think, opposed to some other part of Well, you. just, I think in, in the, in the sense of being a responsible, um, uh, Sajcaster, what he really means is run. Flee. Flee. As fast but in as the absence can. of right. an escape. An escape. Uh, fleeing is always preferable, uh, when confronted with a cleaver wielding maniac. Because while the genes will hold, bruising may be even a, a euphemism for what will happen. The uh, The tissue below the genes took quite a beating. And as you well, can see in the video, it leaves a dent. That's right. And and so having just run through that little vignette of what to do if you're being pursued by cleaver-wielding maniacs, I can't help but wonder if this was the advice given by the master butcher to his apprentice when he said, go out and listen to what those two fellas are talking about. You're wearing jeans. You're wearing jeans. <laughs> Get out there. You'll be fine. So uh, we hacked away with the cleaver just to realize that we were where we were. And, well, we needed a point. Right. And it, I guess it's worth pointing out without revealing anything that uh, the situation, the circumstances under which our characters are required to remove this leg are somewhat time-bound. Yes, you really don't have an un, 
unrestrained segment of time in which to remove somebody's leg. Well, perhaps if you're a serial killer at home and you've got, you know, you've got the evening to yourself. But these people don't have that option. Right. They are out in the world. They're out in the world. They are out on a street trying to do this. And so there's a time crunch when you realize that after two minutes of hacking away that you have not even made a cut. Well, it means you're not going home with a leg. And in the situation that we have put them in, they cannot lower their expectations that far. No. They must achieve the leg and they must uh, leave with it. We found that the next thing that has to happen in order to move the story along is someone's got to offer up some sort of pointed implement to, to cut through the denim first before you can even get to the leg. Like scissors. Yes, if but... If you had the foresight. If you had the foresight to bring them. Scissors. And so we said, uh, as much like uh, that movie Apollo 13, where they were trying to fix the space capsule and said, we can only work with what they have on board, we thought, what are you likely to have if you're out in a car with your friend going to cut off somebody's leg, for example? And the most... Uh, reasonable answer that helped us. I mean, tire iron, not helpful. No. But uh, pocket knife. Many people have them. You have them. I don't because um, if you read my blog, you know why I don't play with sharp implements. But um, so it was reasonable to assume that his partner in crime would have a knife that he could lend him to get through the denim so that the cleaver could do that for which it was made. And we did find that that worked quite well. It did. Uh, but time-consuming. And so... Like, uh, uh, it was almost like sawing. Denim's tough stuff. Denim is tough stuff. And so uh, maybe one day uh, a maker of jeans would like to sponsor one of these casts because we like their products <laughs> because they thwarted us and we uh, do not like being thwarted. So uh, the full video of it is on the website uh, involving the, the cutting. Because yes, you've got the, pre- the with jeans and the without. That's right. And because at a certain point, once you have uh, cleared the area, as it were, you then got to hack through the, the meat and then the bone. And, and that went pretty smashingly. Yes. And I mean, I the cleaver say, lived up to expectation. And for those of us who were saying, for God's sakes, it's a cleaver. It's, it's the weapon of horror movies. Since horror movies were made, how could it let us down in this fashion? Once the denim was out of the way, it performed... As advertised. It admirably. Was, admirably. It was fun to watch, and it did what we wanted to do. And as we advise our children, when you go forth to do things, you should come away with some new knowledge. The experiment of denim-wrapped pork did exactly that. We learned things we did not know, and now we will go forth and use them in pursuit of our aims. We also learned that thus the job did not end with the cleaving of the bone and flesh. Because the other half of the jeans were still attached. That's right. And since they were laying flat upon a surface, and I know at one point you actually suggested, for the sake of realism, that we should do this on asphalt. And I cautioned that after our experience at the Remkin Outback, doing this outside would certainly send us to jail. That's right. <laughs> and so, um, in pursuit of refined knowledge uh, that we did not have when we started the day, getting arrested would definitely get in the way so we decided to persist where we were we managed to hack through the bottom half of the jeans but what we had originally imagined as a 120 second operation hmm. was actually closer to Five nine minutes. minutes or something yes yeah, easily yeah i mean yeah and so uh which is good for our purposes because we get to put our characters in this sort of situation where they have a, a, an expectation as it were and then we trample all over it so uh, that was good news. And then subsequent to that is, you know, once you have the leg, what do you do with it? But I think that's a tale for another day. It is. And so this week, I don't think we have any reviews, books, movies, etc. Because we, we actually set out in pre-production to have a short podcast. And uh, we can see now we're at minute 45, uh, at least pre-edits. <laughs> so I'm not sure we're going to meet that expectation. So we can lower that once again. <laughs> once again. Uh, but we did have some food porn, which we alluded to earlier. So cue up the food porn theme. All right. So here we are in the food porn section. And even though we have all these videos and photos of us dismembering the denim-wrapped pork, we failed to deliver on, on the food porn, the porn part of this. 
but uh, we'll do our best to describe um, kind of two situations. So one was the outback, um, and the other, a place that we've also discussed earlier in food porn called uh, Montoya's, which is a Mexican restaurant. It's worth mentioning that uh, at the time of this Sajcast and at the time of these events, uh, we were both on a, a diet of lowered carbohydrates. Or so, non-existent ones. So we are on the lowered expectations and lowered carbohydrates portion of food porn. And so let's, uh, to put that in perspective, and in keeping with the stringent demands of our sponsor, when you go to Montoya's, as we described in earlier Sajcasts, and of course I am not going to tell you which one because you have to listen to all of them, one of the perks of Montoya's is the bowl of cheese dip and the attendant chips that go with it. Now, if you read the back of a bag of chips... You notice that a standard serving size is somewhere between 12 and 14 chips, but if there is a bowl of cheese with chorizo in it, the standard serving size gets into the near triple digits. Mm-hmm. But when you're on the low carb, you can't do that. So going into Montoya's, the expectation was the lead-in for Montoya's is their fantastic chorizo dip, which we could not have. Well, we, we're not, we weren't certain. We weren't certain. We didn't know what all was in that cheese dip, so we were steering clear. And and when you're on any kind of rigorous diet, self-imposed, it's better to err on the side of caution and say, well, I'm not going to ruin my entire week's worth of progress over the chance I might be right about the cheese Mm. dip. And so that's the elevated expectation at Montoya's is that you're going to go there and have a fantastic cheese dip. And and, some salsa. And and some salsa. and, and, And the vehicle for all these delightful things. Somewhere between 80 and 150 chips. So uh, that's the Montoya's expectation. Now at the Outback... Well, well, let's stick with Montoya's. Well, wait. I'm just, just to get to our theme, but the, the tip of the spear at the Outback is the Bloomin' Onion. Uh, I hope and, you weren't go there, but yeah, okay. So that, that's, what, that's what listeners to the Sajcast might have expected to hear about. In this particular food porn section was the fantastic cheese dip at Montoya's, and the Bloomin' Onion at the Outback. But here's what really happened. <laughs> so uh, we ended up as a foursome there. So you and your girlfriend, me and mine, we were... Actually, I was on the, my way to another Mexican restaurant, Abuelo's, when we got your text, and you guys were on your way to another restaurant. Yes, it was... was a Korean restaurant. Yes, and, and the thing is, is that when you have four people who are on... A restricted diet. I mean, uh, where there are guidelines to what you eat, as opposed to our previous freewheeling style, where I would say, "Hey, do you want to go here and eat the following?" Your answer is usually, "Okay, let's do that." But in in light of these new uh, restrictions, I said, "Hey, we're going to go to Korean barbecue because it's meat and meat based, and and they'll just give us meat and we grill it and then we eat it. How could that be bad with with the carbs and whatnot?" And you pointed out that the marinade likely had sugar in it. And that would ruin that deal. We had to go to a plan B. And so the four of us ended up at Montoya's. At Montoya's. And uh, as we got there, there was a convention of blue hairs, which is a little unusual. It's not what I expected. Montoya's. On a Friday night. On a Friday night. And uh, so we were seated and uh, we shushed away the, the chips because we got there a bit earlier than you. And it was at that moment that I realized that this meal... I should already lower my expectations. I hadn't as much as I should have. Because all the things that we so enjoy, you know, the chips, of course, the cheese, the burrito, the taco, all off limits. Right. And so if you're on a reduced carbohydrate diet, uh, fajitas or uh, a flank steak or whatever sort of bistec they might have is really where you're going. There's not a lot of other choices um, at a Mexican restaurant. Which suits me, because I always tend to get the fajita, but I get it after a quart of cheese dip, and it's somewhere between 65 and 102 chips. Mm. And even the fajita, in its natural form, comes with some sort of Uh, implement, you know, to hold in your hand. A flour or a corn shell that you fill with things and then consume. But I have to say, I mean, the fajitas stand alone. I have come to appreciate, because I've had this diet for a while uh, and that's one of those things that uh, i never used to consider you could eat this without you know a tortilla what <laughs> yes and and you know here's the thing that fits in with the food porn section i think more properly is that the highest compliment that you can pay a dish is that the only 
companion it needs to be good is a fork. Yes. And when you're on the low-carbohydrate diet, you spend a lot of time with maybe just meat and maybe just a fork, which means that in that sense, you have to kind of raise your expectations because you're getting less of the things that make other things taste good. You are mm -hmm. often stuck with the thing, and it has to be good. And at Montoya's, i got to say, it really is. Not that I wouldn't turn down a chorizo dip one day in our future, but at the time, you could walk away from that dinner going, well, it was not so bad. There was some, there was some concern, though, that the sodas had been switched. Well, now that is true. And, it, and it, I think my girlfriend got regular soda. And it, yeah, I had a sip of mine, and I think this is what started this. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm not sure that that's diet. Right. And so I switched to tea as a precaution, and then there was just worry all about. Right. And, and you know, there are, there are ways in which you can imagine this happening. You know, they go to fill your cup, and they start with what, you know, they start with regular Coke, and then they realize their mistake, yep. <laughs> switch to diet. So you get kind of a half and a half. But it's of all the reasons to derail the endeavor, I would rather have my low-carbohydrate diet flummoxed by a quart of cheese dip and 40 or 50 chips than a regular soda. Or a box of donuts. <laughs> For example. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to fall off the wagon, don't do it by accident, right? <laughs> well, if you're going to fall off the wagon, you might as well face plant. Yeah, jump. <laughs> jump. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, and it's worth pointing out that uh, when you're on a diet uh, and you're restricting your intake or you're curtailing your normal exuberance with food, you need some consolation. And in the case of the Montoya's dinner, the consolation was the scintillating company in conversation because I think it was the first time in weeks that we'd all been yeah, in it one had been place. a while. So that was that kind of elevated the uh, the meal beyond the level of uh, chorizo cheese dip to accomplish. Yeah, because I would have thought going into a Mexican restaurant and ordering essentially just fajitas with no accompanying anything, no beans, no rice, no tortillas alone. I'd be out there in eight minutes. I mean, you bring them my fajita, I'm gone. Right. We closed the place. Yeah, we were the last people there. Well, now, in our defense, all the senior citizens did have to get home for their bedtime. But, <laughs> the sun uh, was going down. Yes. And it is possible that much like our sojourn at the Outback or the grocery store, our topics of conversation were not anywhere. The, the table next to us said, yeah, I think we're going to go now. <laughs> and fine. You know, uh, we were an acquired taste, I suppose. So, yes, a good time was had by all. Yes. And then uh, it was the next day that we went to Outback and had our pork uh, experiment. Right. And and the Outback is a place where if you're on the low carb, um, it is a, a... You can do pretty well. You can do pretty well. It is a good place to land. They've got steak. They've got vegetables. They've got a wedge salad, which is delightful. And so you almost don't miss the Bloomin' Onion, except when the people at the table next to you order it. Yes, that's the downfall. Because I've been there a couple times where I didn't see one and I, and I didn't miss it. But yes, when they bring one by, uh, it's not good. Now, if we had planned ahead, we could say that, being who we are, we used the topic of conversation at our table to diminish the <laughs> enjoyment of the table next to us in their bloomin' onion. Well, I think those guys are talking about chopping off some bloke's leg. This onion doesn't taste as good as I thought. You ever strike you how a blooming onion looks like fingers, little fingers from children? <laughs> Just see if we can derail them completely. Yes. Um, so, uh, but that's mean-spirited. We didn't do that. No. I mean, that is the refuge of the... Scoundrel. The scoundrel. The, the hungry and sugar-deprived scoundrel. But scoundrel nonetheless. There is no justification for that. So, uh, but anyway, I our, had... Our opening volley, which I thought was interesting... Because I've had this a couple times, and uh, my girlfriend and I quite enjoy it, which is their um, seared tuna. So it's a strip of tuna, maybe six inches long, um, and it's seared in the way of searing. So it's quickly charred on all the sides, and it's nice and pink in the middle. And um, I think they may put some seeds or whatever on the outside, yeah. and it comes with... Uh, Two different Yeah, one, one's a vinaigrette -y sort of thing, which was sweet, so we avoided it. And the other was kind of a miso mayonnaise. And I know that you hadn't had it before. And so you were bold and you tried it. Yeah. I did not care for it. And you did not care for it. <laughs> and I know you said, it tastes like this isn't cooked. Yes, because I know what our listeners count on in the food porn section is my keen observation of things. Uh, or nothing. 
but I did observe that it was not fully cooked. So, uh, and it, it did, it just tasted funny to me, and so I, I passed on it. You're not a huge fan of fish overall. No, generally not. Um, and, and it was right around the time when they brought out that wedge of bread that they bring you at the outback, yes. and so that lowered my mood, and I looked at the guy. Darkened who, like the loaf itself. Darkened like the loaf itself, and I looked at the fellow who brought it and said, you know, if we gotta cut off anybody's leg today, maybe it's the guy <laughs> who brings us a loaf of bread. But that's mean-spirited as well. And so we did not do that. We are merciful. He did get away with both his legs and his loaf of bread. Yes. So. Uh, but then the wedge salad. And so we've had many a wedge salad in the past. We have. And I think the last time I had been previous to this at a Outback, I was on a low-carb diet. Same one. And uh, I encountered the balsamic glaze. So uh, this is a wedge salad, which is a quarter of a head of lettuce, essentially. Uh, blue cheese, bacon, uh, tomatoes, and then they drizzle a reduced balsamic glaze out on it, which was impossible to remove and was far too sugary to eat. And so I basically had a wasted wedge. Right. But I advised you of this, and we were able to order without balsamic glaze, and then I thought the wedge was pretty pretty it good. It was pretty good without it. We did all right. That's right. And we felt virtuous for having vegetables. For having vegetables. Well, yes. And there was more vegetables to come, because then we ordered steak with broccoli. That's right. And you had a nice tub of horseradish. I did. Horseradish is a particular favorite of Jews the world over. Um, and so I grew up eating horseradish. And um, as is featured prominently in my blog, it's also used to just mask the flavor of whatever hideous mm -hmm. thing you might be eating. So you start to like horseradish um, as a savior, much like much like uh, prisoners in 1945 <laughs> welcome the Red Army, even though they looked like a grim lot and life with, un, in the Soviet Union would not be so great. But it's way better than what we're doing right now. So you know what? We love you guys, whoever you are. And that was kind of my relationship with horseradish. You? Oh, yeah. You're great. Bring me all of that that you can. But it did go nicely with my steak. And I was going to say, it's not that your steak needed covering. Absolutely, Absolutely not. But um, since it was available and it was low-carb, I thought, let's give it a whirl and see what it goes with. And it went well with, with everything. And you had a sirloin, right? I did. I had the Outback Special, which is the sirloin. Yes. And Quite so, good. also, if you're there at lunch, here's a tip. Ask for the dinner menu. And there's more stuff on it. Yeah, because we're looking at the lunch menu going, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a second. This There's day. several pages missing. If we were going to generate a theme based on this lunch, I would say that perhaps the Outback was attempting to lower our expectations. But we got around that. We did. And so um, I also had a steak, needless to say. I had the prime rib. The biggest one they would bring, which was like half a cow, was pretty good, was the 16-ounce uh, prime rib. And I had it with horseradish's cousin at the Outback called Tiger Dill. Now, if you've never experienced Tiger Dill, next time you're at the Outback, ask for it. It's like a secret club handshake because it's nowhere on the menu. The words don't appear anywhere. And uh, over the years traveling, I spent many, many a night at Outback, and eventually I learned the secret handshake. See, now I thought we were going to get through an entire Sajcast without you... Um glorifying your world-class <laughs> gallivanting, but I'm here, sharing. I'm, I'm here, sharing the, the knowledge. At the last moment, here it is, the insider <laughs> handshake, the secret club of people who travel the world. Well, it's the same as going to an In-N-Out burger and ordering something animal style. Right? Okay. It's not on the menu. It's, it's just something you need to know. Anyway, what it is is a prepared horseradish. So it's horseradish, um, sour cream, and maybe some other mayonnaise-y thing. It's hard to tell. Right. And, of course, dill. Hence the tiger dill. So the tiger is the, the horseradishy bark, and the dill is the dill. Um, but anyway, and I enjoy that greatly with my um, prime rib. And it's also good with the broccoli, which we had to sustain ourselves. And I would, it would be mean-spirited of me to point out that you could probably dip a bloomin' onion in it. It would be fantastic as mm -hmm. well. But I don't, I'm not sure that has any bearing on this particular... It would have been mean-spirited to point out that you could probably do that with the bloomin' onion dip and yes. a steak. <laughs> yes, but that way lies madness. And so we didn't do that either. We restricted ourselves to being good in our food choices. We uh, deployed our insider's handshake at the Outback to get the things that we needed and to keep our glasses empty and our waiter far, far away, we refused his loaf of bread 
and spent the meal talking about the best way to cut off someone's leg. Indeed. And so, it looks like you've wasted yet another hour with us here at, at Studio Z. Um, even though we didn't cover any reviews today, we seem to have a lot to say about what we thought was very little. That's right. And and for those of you who enjoy our reviews, stay tuned because we've got some good ones coming up. And so in closing, today's Sajcast was sponsored by... Lowered Expectations. Makers of, well, I guess that'll do. When good enough is good enough. Thank <laughs> you.